Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, especially if you are new here, uh, maybe you are visiting. We are very thankful that you have come uh, to be with us. And if there are any questions that you may have about Jesus or about this church, uh, if there's any questions you might have about this sermon or why it is we do what we do here, please do not hesitate to talk to myself or to any one of the other elders after service is over. Uh, also, you can always send any one of us an email directly. Uh, each of our email addresses are on our church website, and we'll try our best to get back to you within a few days. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 7 and verse 1 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 is our passage today. That passage can be found on page 863 if you are using a church Bible, page 863. Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. Before we look at our text, would you please uh, join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship and that we can gather uh, as a church. And as we come to your word now, please make this sermon clear and have it be accurate to your word and powerful in each of our lives by the Holy Spirit. Uh, please take the blinders off of us so that we might know you for who you really are and understand uh, our own selves as well for who we really are. And, and please, God, would you bring us, uh, each of us, closer to you. We pray for a, a great joy and love and a powerful hope and peace that, that only really comes from knowing you. Uh, we ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus has just finished preaching a defining sermon to the massive crowds, describing to them a true disciple and a genuine believer and who is an actual citizen of his kingdom. What does this person look like and live like in distinction to those who do not believe? And in the closing of this sermon, Jesus gives to us perhaps the primary indicator of who it is that is really one of his own. And that indicator is, how does this person respond to the word of Christ? Does this person merely hear, or does this person actually put into practice what has been heard? Do we only listen, or do we really live it out? Is the word of God authoritative over our own lives? And the answer to that question is the difference between being immovable and unshakable in hardship and trial and ultimately in the judgment or being completely flattened by hardship and trial and ultimately devastated in the judgment. Is the word of Christ authoritative over us? And we now come to a text which gives to us a beautiful picture of a humble faith in the very word of Jesus. We have a portrait of a person who has a real trust in him. This is a man who genuinely believes and has a much deeper understanding and perception of Jesus than these massive crowds do of who he really is and of who we all truly are in light of who really, he really is. Undeserving and yet still served. Unworthy but yet still loved. And this passage begins for us a series of narratives in Luke where Jesus is interacting with different kinds of people, going through different kinds of things. This is narrative theology where we find more and more about God and more and more about ourselves in the retelling of this human interaction. And so we read in verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, 
he entered Capernaum. Now a servant had a servant who was, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. We are introduced here to a very exceptional person, the kind of person who seems to deserve goodness from God. This is a grade A kind of man, unique in his combination of qualities and who appears to be worthy of God's favor because of the way in which he lives his life. He's the type of person that most people would think God should really bless him. This man is driven and faithful. He is a centurion, which means that he is in direct charge of about 100 Roman soldiers, sometimes more, sometimes less. Some historians say about 60 to 80 troops, but either way, this man is a man of great authority. I mean, Rome during the first century is the premier superpower of the entire ancient world at this point. And they conquered and maintained the peace between other people groups because of their military might. And Rome took this so seriously that Roman centurions would remain single. They didn't get married because they needed to be single-minded in the service of the empire. And so no wife or children to distract them from the task at hand because they might be sent to various places in that empire at a moment's notice, which means that to have this kind of career, you had to be very devoted to your country and very loyal and courageous and brave and laser-focused on Rome's needs even more than your own needs, and even at the cost of a normal life, which would eliminate anyone who did not have great fortitude and strength. And so career-wise, this man is the cream of the crop, both driven and faithful and also very well-paid. And while many Roman soldiers had this reputation of heartlessness and and even brutality, a things get done this, whatever the cost kind of drive. I mean, this isn't the age of drones and shooting missiles. You were inches away from the very people you would fight against in the name of Rome, looking at them in their eyes. It's, it's hard to turn that off or compartmentalize that kind of mentality. And yet it is strangely that we find this man, while being utterly a soldier of soldiers, we find that he has a very soft heart. This text shows us that this sick servant, his ill slave who was at the point of death, is of his primary concern. And that's because this menial slave, verse 2 says, is highly valued by him, which is the same word for value that speaks to a person or thing which is precious or esteemed. This servant is precious to this centurion. He's close to his heart which is counter to the culture of the first century where servant and slaves were also uh, more considered to be an object than they were a person, which means that if your slave can't work, you go and get a new one. If the person is sick, the object is broken because the only value a slave would have was that value that they could bring to you by offering a service to you. But this centurion, high and mighty, distinguished and honored, he doesn't view a servant like this. Because this slave's illness is this man's highest priority, as if his hurt was his own hurt, which is why when hearing about Jesus, about his authoritative word, 
and about his miraculous healings and power over the human body, even over things like paralysis and leprosy, he asked the elders of the Jewish people, the leaders of the Jewish community, who this centurion thinks might have an in with Jesus, can you go ask Jesus this on my behalf? And this is actually a, a pretty insane strategy if you think about it, because the Jewish people normally hate Rome. Because Israel is not free. They're under foreign occupation and domination, which is currently being enforced by Roman soldiers who are being led by centurions like this man right here. This man right here is usually an enemy, and yet we find that this man, again, is so exceptional and so unlike other people that even his own enemies want to vouch for him. And the people he is keeping in line, so to speak, are the very ones who want his highest good. And why is that? Because this Roman, even though he is a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, and someone outside of Yahweh's covenant community, this Roman genuinely cares about the people of God, even when most Romans viewed the Jewish people as thoroughly beneath them. This centurion loves Israel, and not just in sentiment, but he loves Israel so much that he puts his own personal wealth forward in building the people a place to worship Yahweh. He gifts to them a synagogue. So the people can come and hear the very word of God, even if he, as a Gentile, is excluded himself, that I will put my money where my mouth is so that these people can worship Yahweh. And no doubt, I am sure, that this centurion was a butt of many jokes made by his own peers. What you spend your money on? You're going to pay your hard-earned cash living as a single man devoted to Rome entirely. You made so many sacrifices to be loyal to your country so that you can take your earnings and pay for these lowly Jews to worship their lowly God. You think that helps him in his career advancement or wins the admiration of his superiors or earns the respect of the soldiers under his watch? You have to really believe in something to live like this and to endure scorn among your peers and invest your money into worship. And so in these opening verses, we find a very exceptional man who even his own enemies vouch for. We have a Gentile who is in love with the people of God and spends a ton of money towards Yahweh's worship. We have a seasoned veteran who yet still has the heart of a child, a distinguished man of authority who stoops down to care about a lowly slave who is about to die. This is a very, very good man with a very, very desperate need. And if there is anyone who deserves favor from God, and anyone who has a right to ask Yahweh something, anyone who is worthy of having Jesus come and help him, it has to be this man right here, right? I mean, that's how most people would think. And this is how most people view God, as somehow owing them something because they are generally a very good person, that God is indebted to me somehow because of how I have lived my life or what great worth I have to offer. And a lot of people in the world today would likely echo what these Jewish elders are pleading right here, that this man is worthy to have God do something for him. He has earned it. This mentality was the predominant mentality of the first century and is still the predominant mentality of our century, which is a simple works-based relationship with deity. I do something good, then you, God, do something good for me. That's how the relationship works. And yet it is this very prevalent mentality 
that the centurion rejects wholeheartedly. And we see that as we continue in verse 6. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. We have this worthy, not worthy contrast being highlighted in these verses. This man's own enemies say he is worthy. This man's own servant would confess his goodness should be the basis of why Jesus should bless him. He's powerful, devoted, faithful, kind-hearted, compassionate, and has given all kinds of money to the church. He's spiritual and loyal, and the verdict of the people around the centurion were thee. And yet it is the verdict of this centurion's very own heart, unworthy or literally unfit to even have Jesus come under my roof. I am unworthy to even approach Jesus on my own. Now, does this man have self-esteem issues? Does it sound like he needs to inflate his self-worth a bit, like so many modern-day counselors think, that the solution to so many of our maladies is more stroking of our egos? Is this man's self-perception, is it even healthy? When we come to Jesus with the disposition and the attitude that we are worthy of his help because of who we are and how we live or that we are somehow so beautiful that of course Jesus should come and help us in whatever way we ask him to help us with. When we are trying to negotiate and barter with God that I am this way and have lived that way and so you need to hook me up with this. We are ultimately confessing our lower opinion of him and our higher opinion of ourselves. That the reason and the basis for any favor that God does give to us is somehow found in us and earned by us because we can earn it. We are capable of that. And God's blessing upon our lives, therefore, is because he really owes it to us. We are in those very moments unveiling a deep conviction of who we think we are relative to who we think he is. And when the Jewish elders go and plead to Jesus, this centurion's worthiness because he's kind, generous, built a synagogue, and yada, 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 they are not actually representing him the way he wants to be represented. Because when this centurion hears of how this Jesus, by his own command, expels demons just like that from the oppressed life, and by his touch, eradicates the worst kind of untouchable leprosy. And by his voice, tells a paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the guy who was carried in on a mattress immediately gets up and carries that which used to carry him right out the front door. And by his same command, causes all the fish of the sea to jump into their demise, into empty fishing nets that didn't fool a single one of those fish the entire night. This centurion's view of Jesus rises to much higher places and is elevated to much greater categories than these Jewish elders would ever classify Jesus as being in. This centurion understands because he understands his own authority. Rome had conquered nations because of military power and efficiency. A hundred troops here, ready at a moment's notice, in obedience, supreme in training, that when the commander says jump, they say how high. 
And when the centurion barks out, do this, they do it immediately. And if that's the case with a guy like me, then what about this Jesus who barks, stand up, and the guy who's paralyzed stands up with no muscle atrophy, no physical therapy necessary, no extended recovery timeline. And when this Jesus says to a supernatural demonic force, be silent and come out, and the demon who has oppressed the man for a for years, is immediately silent and comes out, then, then who is this man Jesus? When this centurion, who remains unnamed in our text, ponders on the person of Jesus, his perception of Jesus begins to elevate to heights unknown to the Jewish elders and even to the watching crowds and even most of the original disciples at this point. For if Jesus has this kind of authority over the supernatural realm and over the physical realm, the fish and the ocean, and has authority over even the human body, then the necessary implication is such that I am not worthy to be in your presence, nor am I worthy to even approach you myself with my own needs, never mind the needs of my lowly slave. This centurion no longer has any vain fantasies that he could somehow put a man like Jesus into his own debt because he built a little old synagogue, no matter how much that cost him. And if we would just but ponder a little bit more upon this person of Jesus, we ought to feel ourselves in the same shoes as this man in our text if we would just but recognize who Jesus really is. And this is something of what Peter has already felt in Luke chapter 5, 8. He had witnessed the miracle of the great catch of fish after a long night without a single bite. And yet at Jesus' authoritative word, there are so many fish in those nets that the nets start to break and then the boats start to sink. And Peter's instant reaction at beholding this authority of Jesus' word, he falls down and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Because the closer we get to understanding who it is that Jesus actually is, the more and more we find ourselves unworthy to be in his presence. Outside note, this is the proper response to almost any miracle of God. This kind of abject humility. Not give me that miracle power, God, so that I can become a miracle healer and sell out some conferences. No, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so the closer we do get in understanding who Jesus is, the more and more we will find ourselves to be unworthy of even being in his presence and this is precisely the humility of the centurion in our text. And yet, this centurion still has this boldness to reach out for Jesus, even though he knows he's unworthy. There's this powerful faith in him. And why is that? Because he realizes Jesus' own character of goodness and kindness precisely to those who are unworthy. Is a demon-possessed man under satanic influence? Is he excluded from Jesus' goodness and help? No. Is a leprous man forced to the outskirts of society? Is he excluded from the touch of Jesus? No. Is a paralytic who can offer nothing to Jesus, literally needs to be carried to him, is he not welcomed to the presence of Jesus himself? No, he's absolutely welcomed. Because the basis of God's goodness to us is not found within any of us. The basis of God's goodness and kindness and healing and helping and love 
is found within himself and who he is. Alexander McLaren, he writes this, that that is the deepest truth of all, that worthiness and unworthiness has nothing to do with Christ's love. It's nothing to do with Christ's love. And here we find that even after Jesus has preached the masses, such a soul-defining sermon, and concluded it with such a soul-searching warning about building your house with no foundation, that those who hear and never really obey, they're in line for some great devastation. We find Jesus who is physically and emotionally exhausted, and yet it is that it is his loving heart which impels him to go and help the lowest of Gentile slaves. He goes simply because that is who he is. He loves this much because, brothers and sisters, Jesus' love is unmerited and it is free and it is for any and for all who would just look to Jesus for who he really is and therefore understand ourselves for who we really are in light of who Jesus actually is, that as unworthy and as sinful as we can be, it is Jesus who has come to save and to seek the lost. And this love is rooted in him more than it is rooted in anything we are or in anything that we can offer to him that the undeserving might actually be the very ones who are the most ready to receive the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. And so it is that this centurion has both a deep humility and a strong and very confident faith because he has pondered upon that which he has heard about this Jesus. And this is where we see this narrative theology unfolding and teaching us about who we are and about who God is. Luke is showing to us this contrast between apparent worthiness and actual unworthiness. This centurion has an appearance of worthiness because he's unique, exceptional, and distinct in relation to the people around him. I mean, who builds an entire synagogue, a church, out of his own pocket? Who is this distinguished and important and yet still cares deeply for slave? But this worthiness is only apparent. It only appears that way because this man is being compared to the ones around him. And if we think our own goodness and worthiness is solid because we compare favorably to people who are worse than us, then we are sorely mistaken. This is just a facade of worthiness. But this centurion also understands his own actual unworthiness while being compared to Jesus and not just to those who he can find who are worse than he is. That commanding a hundred troops is nothing compared to commanding the wind and the waves, the fish of the sea, the demonic realm, and eradicating illness and even the most unhealable kinds with just a word. And when we compare ourselves to him and not to others, we find that we cannot even approach him nor have him come into our house because that would be utterly presumptuous. And if there is any reason why at all that God should help us or why Jesus should ever come near to us, it just simply cannot be found in us. It must be found in him. And if anyone can help the dying slave and the lowest person with the most desperate need, it must be because Jesus himself wants to descend and not that we can ascend or even stand up on our own two feet, which preaches to us all the more that the only basis for our own salvation is faith in Jesus Christ and not a faith in ourselves because there is only one who can deliver us from death and from dying eternally. 
There's only this one who can save us from our disease of sin. And we must come to him on the basis of his grace and his love and his kindness and not at our own merit. Because it is that the only ones who are worthy to be served by Jesus are the ones who know that they are unworthy of it. Philip Ryken, in his uh, excellent commentary on the book of Luke, he writes this. The first and most important thing we need to see about ourselves is that we are sinners and in desperate need of God's grace. And when we see ourselves as we really are, the way that God sees us, in all the unworthiness of our sin, we see the supreme worthiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the worthy Son of God. He is the beginning and the end, the creator of the universe, the one by whom and for whom all things were made. He is the mighty and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the Holy Lamb of God who was slain for our sins on the cross, who was raised from the dead for our justification and who now deserves all honor, blessing, glory, and power. And if this is who Jesus is, then what kind of people ought we to be? If this is how we see Jesus, then how is it that we must see ourselves? This is not, at the end of the day, about having low levels of self-esteem or an unhealthy pessimism, because this is actually quite freeing, that God's love for us never rested in anything to be found in us, but rests solely on Jesus Christ. And therefore, that love cannot be threatened by anything that will be found in us, which gives us this freeing security that it's because of who he is and his mercy and grace and not anything within me that we can have this confidence and freedom to live unto him with all of our might. And this is very important for us to remember, especially those of us who struggle with ongoing sin in our battle with it, that in those times of mourning and digging deep into our own hearts, and that filth just seems to be in every nook and cranny of our hearts, and we're tempted at that point to think that, you know what, Jesus could never love anyone like me. That's when we need to peer into Christ's very word and into texts like these and realize that the love of Christ is precisely for those who know they do not deserve it. And therefore, we must believe him enough to stop what it is that we're doing, which is evil. And there are some of us who actually don't get frequently discouraged over obvious sins because our heads are too inflated with self-importance and filthy pride. We just don't have that awareness. And this can be a lot of us because we are all born with pride. We're born proud from the two-year-old in my house all the way up to me. And we need a text like this to be reminded of a humility that is consistent with pondering the person of Jesus and how high and lifted up he really is because it's so easy to lose this perspective and therefore lose our own humility. It is easier to get caught up in my rights and what I deserve and what I am worthy of, and the treatment I am entitled to, whether it be by my spouse, or my kids, or my boss, or my neighbor, or whoever, and therefore we then lose this sense of desperation, like we find in this centurion who is so needy and desperate for the only one who can help him. That God opposes the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. And there are others of us here who may beat themselves up and sulk in a corner, have zero optimism about their own Christian walk, not because of any particular vice, but because of this ongoing stagnancy. That, you know what? Things just never change. That if they were the centurion in our text, they would say, you know what? Let's not even ask Jesus. You're already on your deathbed. It's too late. That's too much to ask. It's no use. And when that kind of mentality starts to hit us, we stop asking big things because we've lost our big faith in Christ's big power. Then we stop asking Jesus to save our family and friends. It's too late. Or to break this bad habit, that's just who I am. Or to love this hard person, even within our own house and our own family, that we don't ask great and mighty things. Because we've come to a place where we don't think Jesus is all that great or mighty. The combination that we're seeing in this centurion is one of great humility and yet also great faith. He understands that I do not deserve and yet understands that Jesus helps the undeserving, not in little ways only, but in big, death-defying ways that I am humble and yet I can still be bold at the same time because I trust not in myself but in the heart of Jesus and I trust also in his power. Now, if you're new here or newer here and, and you don't understand what the gospel is, that means the good news. If you don't understand the good news of Jesus Christ, what this passage is telling us and what it is telling you is that the way to approach God is not on the basis of your own works or your own merit or your own self-worth or your contribution to society or your own beauty or your own goodness. We do not climb our way into heaven by piling up a stairway of our own worthy deeds. Christianity is putting our trust into a person that is not our own selves. It is putting our trust into Jesus Christ and into who he is in all of his love and mercy and his grace for the undeserving. That more than healing any slave on his deathbed is that Jesus has come to save us, not from physical death alone, but from eternal death thereafter which is a punishment we each deserve because we have each sinned against God, whether it be my simple neglect or passive disbelief or thinking that he is somehow utterly irrelevant to my life because other things are just so much more important than he is. That's sin. But to defeat his eternal death that we each deserve because of this sin against God, Jesus doesn't just say a word. He actually has to endure that death on our behalf. The righteous for the unrighteous. The worthy for the unworthy. Jesus dies upon the cross and endures the wrath of God against our sin. He does this for the ones who put their trust in him. But Jesus does not stay in the grave. He rises from the dead to defeat the power of death over us. And break the power of sin so that we can actually live entirely new and different lives from here on and throughout eternity. This is what this text is saying. The reason why any of us can be saved and come to know God is because of who God is. And so we have here in our passage this exceptional centurion, but not for the superficial reasons that most people naturally notice. We find this man who is worthy because he knows his own unworthiness and who has an accurately high view of Jesus and therefore a corresponding view of himself. 
and yet who trust in Jesus' goodness to those who do not deserve a thing, which is really a paradigm for any of us who believe of genuine faith and trust in God. We close in verse 9 and 10. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. If there's anything marvelous in this text, we would think it's this healing of this slave on his deathbed without even Jesus being there. He didn't even get to meet him or see him or anything. He just says a word, and Luke doesn't even record what word he says. Now, the watching world today would be like, that is marvelous. But Jesus keys in on something even more marvelous, this man's faith. And one would think that with undeniable proof after proof of Jesus' own deity, and distinctiveness, that paralytic walking around, the leper with a whole new body, that people might marvel at the authority of Jesus Christ's very own word. We would think that naturally there would be a lot more humble-minded people who are in awe of him and who no longer trust in themselves, but in Christ instead as Savior, that after gracious proof, after proof, there would be many of these centurion kinds of people, especially among those who are most religious who are bold in their asking because they know Jesus is mighty and kind, and yet Jesus looks at the massive crowd of his supposed followers. He looks at the nation of Israel, the chosen ones, and yet not a single one of them has what this centurion has. An accurate view of Christ, an accurate view of self, and therefore a humble and yet bold trust and confident faith in who he is, and a recognition that his word is authoritative, that it is enough. You say it, God, it must be true, and I will believe it with all my heart. And the question this narrative leaves for us is do we believe the same? Or are we just one of the crowd members watching and ooing and aahing at the wrong thing? Do we actually believe in the authority of the word of Christ and in his goodness? and in his power, because it is faith, and it is our belief that really honors and pleases God, because our faith in him brings attention to the object of our faith, and it is, at the end of our day, the highest form of worship that we can offer to him, by actually believing in Jesus, by trusting in his heart, by obeying what he says, and believing that he comes to people like us, that when he says something, it's as good as done. And when he proclaims something, it is the truest thing that we can find. Let us, brothers and sisters, be a people of this kind of faith. Would you please close with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you, God, that you are a God that descends because we can never ascend. We thank you, God, that you are a God who comes to the sick, dying slave on his deathbed. We thank you, God, that your love for us is not contingent upon anything to be found in us, but is just in line with who you are. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, that as we ponder him, we know how much it is that you love us because you sent him to us to live like this, to be born in a manger, and ultimately to die upon a cross and experience death so that he might defeat death. God, we thank you so much for Jesus that he came to us because we could never come to you. 
And I ask, God, that by your grace and by your mercy, you would beckon us to come to you on the basis of Jesus Christ and not on the basis of anything found in ourselves. Lord God, would you please make us a church and a family that lives all out and free with all our might for your glory and the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.